This ain't a bunny hop. Hi, welcome back to my podcast. I'm Zoya, your host, and you're listening to The Black Sprout. And today, we're talking about the beginning of hip-hop. Most people know that the beginning of hip-hop originated in the Bronx, um, a New York City borough in the 1970s. So hip-hop or rap music has influenced everything, literally from politics to art, culture on a whole, language, entertainment, media, and even fashion. Like, those are just a few to name, but like, hip-hop has influenced like everything. Um, So an example of hip-hop culture is obviously music. So we're seeing the spread of hip-hop starting in the Bronx, but later spreading to Los Angeles, Atlanta, um, the Midwest, you know, Europe, Asia. We're seeing it all over the world. This is becoming an international phenomenon. But let's go back to the beginning. So what we're seeing is a collab between Black, Latinx, and Caribbean Americans at the time, 1970s. Remember, this is where we are, in the Bronx. And we're talking about block parties happening. And at this time, you wouldn't have been able to purchase like hip hop albums. What you would have been able to do was maybe get a cassette that was being circulated around the city. And so what we're seeing is that many of these practices that were originating in like um, Jamaican dub culture are being introduced into hip hop culture. And I think that's hella cool. A lot of Jamaican culture set the groundwork for hip hop that we see today, whether it's the styles, the techniques, the music techniques, um, the technical techniques. Uh, Clearly I love the word techniques, but (laughs) what we're seeing is this coming from Jamaica. And so some of the big names that we're seeing from New York City are DJ Cool Herx, Grand Wizard Theodore, Grandmaster Flash, Africa Bombada, AKA The Godfather. Um, but the holy trinity of rap at this time is really DJ Cool Herc, Africa Bombada, and Grandmaster Flash. So Cool Herc made history um, with him and his sister because they hosted a 1973 back-to-school jam, um, and it was in the record room of his apartment building. And so I thought it was really interesting looking at the invite. Because one, I'm taking an archive class in university, so the fact that I'm looking at what to me, I would have looked at it as just an image before, but looking at it and being like, this is an archive of like rap history. And so it's an invite or a poster, an advertisement talking about the event. And I thought it was really interesting that ladies, uh, admission was a quarter and the fellas was 50 cents. So even back then we knew, you knew what the ladies at the party would be. <laughs> These DJs at the time, DJs or MCs, At this time, they're beginning to experiment with different techniques during these parties, right? So this is including the long percussion breaks, which becomes fundamental to rap music itself, right? So what we're hearing is scratching and turntable techniques. So we're seeing them freestyle and other vocal improvisation techniques, right? And all this is based on Jamaican toasting. Um, And so what the MCs would bring would be called a mobile sound system, right? So this is also coming from Jamaican culture. So picture this. Imagine sheets of cardboard used as dance floors for the break dancers, and we have brick walls are being converted to art canvases, right? And the art that it holds is graffiti, and we're seeing um, turntables. So something I didn't know was this thing called Jamaican toasting. 
So Jamaican toasting is a style of lyrical chanting, which is often seen in like dancehall music. Um, so this involves DJs talking over rhythm and people in Jamaica during the late 1960s, early 70s, this is popular, okay? Like this was the thing. And so they took this technique of speaking, you know, chanting lyrically over music and brought it to the Bronx. So really, the start might have been Jamaica. Oh, anyway, I'm joking. Um, because it was a sub like culture or genre, so it really wouldn't be. But it's really just great that we're seeing the way that these things are connected. And I, I, I make a point to say that because we often don't think about the wider impact that sometimes moments have and how they started, how we got here. So I didn't necessarily want to spend the majority of this episode focusing on specific players as much as painting you a picture of what is hip hop and how hip hop is really a means of resistance. But I did think it was important that we talk about DJ Cool Herc. And so um, one thing that was very standard for one of his performances, would you would see that he would play two copies of the same record and he would switch between them to extend the percussion section, right? So this is where we're getting the idea of the break, right? The percussion break, where all we're hearing is percussion. And so he calls this style of DJing the merry-go-round. And there are tons more of techniques and names and styles of things that, you know, DJs use, but the merry-go-round was a technique and style that he coined. And so while the music was playing um, during these breaks, dancers would perform, right? So they would form a circle and the moment that the music and the words would stop, right? And the break would, the break would happen, right? And we're hearing percussion, they would start dancing. Hence the name Break Dancer. No, I'm telling you guys, when I heard, when I was reading that and I saw they would dance during the breaks, I was like, but that makes sense. And that's why they got the name B-Boys and B-Girls, right? B being break dancer. So break boy, break girl. Anyway, break dancing obviously evolved into a whole global um, subculture. Are you guys starting to see the impact? I'm telling you, hip hop impacted everything. Okay. Maybe not everything, but a lot of things. And so we're going to continue with our cute little history lesson. Um, so I'm introducing a new player. They're called Sugar Hill Gang. So this is a hip hop trio that was releasing what we consider to be the first hip hop record, right? So this is 1979. Um, I say all these dates, partly dates to me are ab arbit arbitrary. That's the word, arbitrary, right? Like I hear these dates and I just go, uh, Actually, that's not true. I guess as I get older, dates sort of make more sense to me. Um, grade 10 history was a battle and a half. No pun intended because all they did was talk about battles all the time. But it was so hard because I was like, here we are talking about all these dates and they mean nothing to me. But for some reason, when we're talking about the impact that black people have on the world, I somehow get it. No, I'm joking. Um, but I think it's really interesting that the timing is 1979 um, and putting resistance in a timeline almost makes sense to me because we often talk about anti-blackness and resistance like it's something so far away, um, you know, very obscure, like this far time in the historical past, like history, we, we really view history as something that's stagnant and not something that is like 
forever changing and having tons of impacts on like other aspects of life. I think that the idea that like history is always changing is something that we should think about and like not look at it as stagnant, mostly because the more we learn about our history, the more we learned how it was lied to us, you know, to protect white ideals and to further white supremacy and the ideals and agendas that it has. And so the more that we know that, I mean, like think about, for instance, the national narrative that is Canada is that, you know, Turtle Island was discovered, right? So that's the first lie, you know, that we're told. So Turtle Island was discovered. How do you discover something that wasn't missing? But it was discovered and then, you know, they came and because people were un uncivilized, I mean, that word seems to be popping up a lot lately. Check the news. But, you know, and civilized people need to be civilized and therefore the civilized come to civilize the uncivilized. And, but we know that's not true, right? Like we know genocide happened and death happened and, and murder happened. And this was a conscious act to eliminate a group of people. And yet we look at history like if it's something that should be left in the past. And so I come back to say that this 1979 is really interesting to me because it cements the idea that resistance and anti-blackness is something very in our recent past, right? Like it is changing anti-racism or sorry, anti-black racism and its sentiments and, and the way that we enact it changes, right? Like the mission is still the same, but the way that we see it often changes and because it's changing, we think it's gone, but it's not. And so in 1979, there's still a need for people to resist a system that would try to harm black bodies, right? There is still need for resistance against anti-blackness. We're in 1979 and a bunch of legislation and powers and people in power have changed, but the message about black resistance has not. Anyway, so, Back to the story or history. So we have Sugar Hill Gang, the hip hop trio, and they released their title, Rapper's Delight, right? So this is the first record happening in, the in 1979. Um, one of the lines in the song being, now what you're gonna hear is not a test, I'm rapping to the beat. And me, the groove, and my friends are gonna try to move your feet. So some may argue that Louis Armstrong's ad-libs on heebie-jeebie could really be one of um, the earliest influences of rap music um, by a jazz musician because of the vocal improvisations as well as the scat singing. But we will allow for the sake of argument um, that that is more of a sidebar and information about the way that things influence each other, right? Like that a lot of things are just connected um, and instead, we're going to talk about how Rapper's Delight reached the top 40 on the U.S. billboards. Now, this is important and this is monumental because we previously we just talked about the fact that rap albums were not a thing. OK, like you were not going to pick up a rap album. They didn't exist. Maybe a cassette. But these rap albums didn't exist. Rap is emerging in this industry, in billboards, in mainstream media, in a way that they didn't expect to happen, right? So we're seeing music-oriented organizations like Universal Zulu Nation that focus on providing positive influences in urban youth's lives, and they're directing them away from drug life, um, gang life, violence, and such. So even that, right, like we often reduce rap to be something so dirty and gritty. I think that's why I specifically had wanted to talk about it, because so many people are speaking on rap and know nothing about rap. 
You know your favorites from 2020 and it's Bad Baby. <laughs> no, like, please free yourself. I'm not saying that what they're doing isn't music, but I want you to free yourself from the idea that you can speak on a topic that, like, you don't even understand the, like, resistance that it birthed, the impact that it birthed. Like, wow, wow. Anyway. So one of the most influential early hip hop songs that was released in 1982 was called Planet Rock. So this is happening by the Zulu um, nation. And the founder of this nation, guys, part of the three trinity, or the holy trinity, my bad, sorry, is Africa Bambata. So at its foundation, it was really about creating positive influence, right? We're in a time where there's a lot of economic insecurity and this, and more the discrepancy between who's being affected greatly by it, right? We're seeing a lot of impoverished, you know, black immigrant and POC communities feeling the brunt of the economic hardships. So during the 80s, we also see the introduction of the drum kits, especially the 808 and more honestly complex sampling, but, 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 songs like The Message from Grandmaster Flash and Furious Five are starting to become popular. So we're seeing international recognition that's starting to begin and we're seeing the emergence of, of hip hop spreading to the UK, Japan, and Australia, right? So where before we were seeing a lot of this influence is happening in New York and its boroughs and spreading to, you know, the Midwest and LA and all these different things, we're seeing it happen internationally around the 80s. And so this is when we enter the era of new school hip hop. So this is more the mid 80s, but still the emergence is happening and we're seeing urban artists like Run DMC or um, LL Cool J. So once we end that era, we're shifting a little bit and as of the late 80s and the early 90s, this is starting to be considered the golden era of hip hop. This is probably where, honestly, most of your faves, um, faves come from. Your faves, fave faves are in the 80s, but your fave faves are at the golden <laughs> age of hip hop. No, I'm joking. So this is the era of Public, en um, public Enemy, Tupac Shakur, Notorious B.I.G., Biggie, um, MC Hammer, Snoop Dogg, and many more, obviously, but those are just to name a few. And so what we're seeing is the rise of gangster rap, um, mostly and especially amongst inner city youth. And so we're starting to see that many record labels are starting to recognize rap as an emerging genre and trend, right? So we're seeing a lot of money being invested into the movement. That is rap. Like that's something we have to not forget through all of this, regardless of what the message is that you're hearing in rap music, rap music in itself is resistance, right? It was born out of resistance. And I'd I remember in one of my classes, somebody had like made this mention or my profs, like it's not that somebody was the student, but it was like one of the profs and it had really clicked to me and a real deep understanding had almost like settled right? The idea that in a society that would want you dead, your very breath, your very joy, your very existence is resistance. So you don't need to have every song. Um, not that I don't think that people should be conscious, obviously, and know their community and what's going on. But 
You don't need every song to speak about police brutality or injustice or, you know, the prison complex or how the education system has failed. It's like you don't have to talk about all these things because by the very existence of the genre, it, it is resistance, right? Like at a time, hey, the jobs weren't there, so they made the jobs through rap. Okay, the creativity entertainment wasn't there, so we made the creativity entertainment. Through rap. Anyway, little sidetrack. But back to investing money into what is a movement. Um, we're seeing the labels like Jeff Jams, right? Like that sounds familiar to a lot of people. I, I know a lot of people are familiar with that. And so at this time, there's also a heavy use of sampling music. And this is mostly just because copyright laws were not there um, and especially not to the extent that they are today. And so they, this music wasn't being able to be protected from sampling. Obviously this sparked um, tons of legal action and the government was forced to pass several copyright enforcement laws, but that is why so much of the 90s and 80s, this golden era of rap, music has so much sampling happening, right? Like. They all falls down. Think, think of a, a bunch of your like 90 fave songs. There's so much sampling that happens in them. And this is why. This is also the time I would like to remind you that hip hop fashion is also starting to hit the mainstream, right? So we're seeing tons of introductions of street wear playing into fashion and language. Hip hop has influenced language. Right? We're seeing a lot of street slang, as some people like to call it, but really Ebonics, AAV, African American vernacular, but we're Canadian, so you know, Ebonics. Even though I know we're talking about an American story, I know guys, I, I love to make things complicated for us, but Ebonics, right? And so this is starting to show up in everyday language. I mean, you have words like bling and fashizzle showing up in the Oxford English Dictionary, okay? Do you know you've made it when you have a white institution put your word into their book? I guess maybe you haven't made it because of cultural appropriation, but still, but still. My point is the fact that these are being recognized as real words with real definitions. I think we, we've understood and, you know, we talked about in other episodes or maybe these are conversations you've had in your classes or friends, family, I don't know. But we understand that language is very important, right? And, and those who we live in a society like certain people get to deem what is appropriate language. Now, I'm not saying whether or not you should swear. Um, we know I've been known to have a colorful vocabulary, but I'd also like to argue I'm a journalist. And so as a journalist, I know a lot of words and sometimes my word usage can be colorful at times. But anyway, we know that how important words are and like what, what we, we talk about like things like swearing, right? Like the image and the idea that um, people get when you use that sort of language. So same with this, right? Using slang and Ebonics sets a sort of image of what people think you're like. However, I think it's very interesting that it became so prevalent in language, regardless of race, that it ended up in the dictionary. And Oxford English at that. <laughs> Following the golden era, we're entering a highly commercialized hip-hop era, right? This is the late 90s. This is where we start to see hip-hop becoming major 
major. Like if we were saying it was major before with the names I listed, this is major now in mainstream genre and it's starting to create high profile artists, right? So we're seeing people like Jay-Z, Lil Wayne, Nelly, Puff Daddy, 50 Cent, right? So there's no surprise that these black artists are also being used to mass market products. So we've seen this tons of times before, right? Like we've talked about the way that we've commodified the black body, right? Like these people are deemed as cool, which is why they're being used to, you know, have strategic branding in their videos, right? Like we're seeing them have brand endorsements. And so following the commercialization era, we're starting to get alternative hip hop. And this is emerging in the 2000s, right? This category was started by incorporating tons of other genres. And notice how we had started the episode talking about the influence of Louis Armstrong and maybe jazz. Well, in the 2000s, these artists are, artists, my bad, these artists are starting to incorporate tons of genres, right? We're seeing punk, jazz, um, electric, or even indie rock, like in their music. This is artists like Outkast, Kanye, MF Doom, Kid Cudi, Kendrick Lamar, even Drake, right? Like these artists are mixing, right? The, the lines of what is rap music have blurred. And so finally, the era that we're in is contemporary hip hop, right? This, this is a turning point with internet distribution allowing for streaming services to share a variety of artist music. So we're seeing people like Cardi B, Megan Thee Stallion, Rico Nasty, one of my faves, 21 Savage, um, Little Uzi Vert. Uh, they're really capitalizing on this ability to share their music through the internet. And so what makes it all hip hop, right? We talked about all these different eras and these timelines and we've realized that hip hop is, is a resistance, sure, but what makes it hip hop? Clearly, we understand that, you know, punk and jazz are influencing hip hop, but what is hip hop? Basically, you have to be black. No, I'm joking. <laughs> hip hop is rhythmic beats, vocals, and breaks, right? So breaks being the long percussion periods. And the four main pillars of hip hop include DJing, turntablism, MCing slash rapping, b-boy breaking, and visual slash graffiti art, right? Like these four fundamental elements had long lasting impacts. And I also want to mention that these four elements were categorized by Africa Pumbata. So something I want us to all understand is that hip hop as a genre is extremely complex, okay? Like hip hop itself, encompasses so many genres, right? We have trap, grime, rapster, uh, rapster. I actually cannot speak and I want more for myself. Anyway, trap, grime, gangster rap, rap rock. Not that I really know about that, but I was like, yeah. Actually, um, um, Rika Nasty always has elements of like rock and like punk in her music, so. I can see that, but I was just even the, the, the label of it, rap rack, rap, rap rock. Oh my gosh. It's like a weird twister, even though it's not. Why am I struggling? Guys, you just see me looking at my notes, struggling. Anyway, then we have mumble rap, something I clearly do, just mumble here on the mic. Um, Latin hip hop, conscious hip hop, and obviously there's more. But I think what we really need to understand is that rap is complex, okay? Hip hop is complex. It's coming out of a resistance of local discourse and negative feelings regarding 
what was at that time a rapidly changing economy, right? After the post-industrial decline, a decline in economy. And anytime there's a decline in money, marginalized people always feel a brunt of it. Pick any epidemic, pick any social struggle. When there is issues in the economy, POC, Black communities, marginalized communities feel the brunt of that. So at this time, because of the shift and the racial differences in communities becoming even more increasingly obvious, white middle-class families moved to the suburbs, right? So in the 70s, these white middle-class families were moving to the suburbs, making it even more drastic that these predominantly Black, Puerto Rican, and, and, and Caribbean immigrant neighborhoods were worse. Their conditions were terrible. And so this economic decline resulted in many businesses closing their doors, right? We're forcing urban youth to decide they wanted some creativity. I want some fun. What am I supposed to do? Make music. And so they held black parties and abandoned buildings, right? Because of the economic, economic decline, you know, you had all these spaces now and empty parking lot. And so what we're really seeing is a resistance against racial barriers in a creative way. This is an example, right? We have songs like Fight the Power. The existence of creativity is resistance against a society that is based in white supremacy, okay? Everything deemed different, everything deemed non-white is always considered non-good. It's bad. And so the very creation of it is a resistance against a society that wouldn't want you to be you. And even that, what is to be you? What is to be Black in New York at this time? There would have been no definition, and yet there would have been one placed upon them. And so many of these early hip hop songs demanded justice, right? These songs raised awareness against racism and mass incarceration, and they even criticized capitalism. Okay, you have these rap songs criticizing capitalism at the very foundation, right? This, this is resistance, this is activism. And so when people today um, talk about and criticize rap, even today we see rap music being used as activism, right? Childish Gambino's This Is America is a very explicit, could you say, example of police brutality that is happening, right? We, we have somebody dancing and in the background is all this death and it is the perfect imagery for what is America. This is America, clearly, right? The song. <laughs> anyway, and then Kendrick Lamar's All Right. And so we're seeing hip hop is being used to speak out against injustice. That, that message sort of never changed. And honestly, I think my biggest conclusion to this long and winding episode is really that reducing hip hop to being auto-tune, extremely sexist, extremely misogynistic, or violent even, just in, in, in nature, right? Like just to, to paint it so broadly, a big generalization, to even claim that it's tasteless, right? Like, you know, a lot of critiques have often talked about whether or not hip hop is like music, right? That's it, rooted in anti-black racism. It, 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 it's rooted in anti-black racism. And I want you instead to think about the ways that hip hop emerged in a time when it was needed. It is a way of communication, right? Like I'm learning about um, archives, like I said, in, in, in school. And so we literally could use these rap songs as an example of what was happening both politically, socially at this time. 
it is a marker for what the world looked like, but also a reminder for what the world still looks like. And so um, I love rap music. I don't know what else to tell you. I guess I'm ending the episode here. It was long, but it was it was good, actually. This episode was really fun to research. Well, that was this week's episode. Um, thank you guys so much for listening, and I hope you'll tune in next time. Bye!